Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. The past month has seen a dramatic change in the diplomatic landscape of the Middle East, with the announcement of a peace deal between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Joining me to talk about this is Anshul Pfeffer, who's written a biography of Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli Prime Minister. We'll be discussing what this deal means for the region, for Mr. Netanyahu himself, and for the Palestinians. Well, today we usher in a new era of peace between Israel and the Arab world. I just came Benjamin Netanyahu was in a triumphant mood when he announced a new peace deal with the United Arab Emirates last month. United Arab Emirates. It includes the mutual opening of embassies, direct flights, and many, many other bilateral agreements. For Israel, this is arguably the biggest diplomatic breakthrough the country's achieved since it made peace with Egypt in the late 1970s. For Benjamin Netanyahu, the peace deal with the UAE is also a political vindication of sorts. He's long argued that Israel can and should make peace with the Arab world without needing to find a lasting peace settlement with the Palestinians first. The Trump administration has helped Netanyahu's vision along, with the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, serving as a go-between linking the Gulf states and Israel. I've been working on this very closely with President Trump over the last uh, three and a half years. It took a lot to get to this point, but this is a dramatic breakthrough that will make the Middle East safer. The reaction on the Palestinian side to the Israel-UAE deal has been bitter. Here is the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, saying that the deal was a blow to the Palestinian issue. But this deal also helps to ease some of the domestic pressure on Netanyahu, who struggled to form a durable government after a number of inconclusive elections. He's also facing serious corruption charges, that could see him lose office and potentially even go to prison. When I got Anshul Pfeffer on the line from Israel, I started by asking him about the significance of this deal, both to Israel as a country and to Netanyahu personally. Since Israel has only uh, made lasting uh, peace so far with two Arab countries, with Egypt and Jordan, so a third country is, uh, is obviously quite significant. I mean, for a short while... Israel had a treaty with Lebanon back in 1982, but that didn't last more than a few months. Um, And this is significant because we know that Israel's been having uh, quite uh, significant relations with various Gulf countries uh, for quite a number of years now on security matters and also on uh, trade and other stuff. But this is the first time that one of those countries has come out and said, we are willing to into a formal relationship and open up a an embassy in Tel Aviv, and for for the Israelis to have their embassy in Abu Dhabi. And uh, what is also a very significant thing for Israelis is that 
is that there'll, there'll be direct flights. And um, this is opening up a whole avenue of opportunity for the Israeli business community, for tourism, and even for just for ordinary people who want to go and uh, either visit the Emirates or use the Emirates as a, as a springboard to, to, to visiting other countries. This is, a, this is a major breakthrough for Israel. There's no question about that. And for Netanyahu personally, um, how much is this a vindication of a particular vision that he's been pushing? You write in your biography of him, uh, of a book he wrote in the early 1990s, which he still regards as a template and kind of an alternative to the two-state solution, make peace with the Palestinians first, as more make peace with the Arab world, really, and kind of park the Palestinian issue. Is that really what this is about? I think so, to a very large degree, that, that is what it's about. Because Netanyahu, as you said, has been trying to stand diplomatic orthodoxy on its head. If for, for decades now, uh, foreign ministers and prime ministers and diplomats from around the world have been coming to the region and saying to the Israelis, you've got to make peace with the Palestinians, you've got to enable the establishment of a Palestinian state as a stage before you can have peace with other Arab countries in the region. And that's basically what the Arab Peace Initiative, which was drawn up by the Saudis in 2003, says. Netanyahu has has turned that sequence around. Netanyahu has now got relations with a major player in the region without basically giving the Palestinians anything. And obviously the UAE, as you say, although it's a small place, it is a big player because it's a rich country, it's a very connected country. But the big prize for Israel, I guess, is Saudi Arabia, which would have been almost inconceivable some time ago. But I guess there is something bringing them together, which is a common fear of Iran. They have a mutual friend in Donald Trump. Uh, Is there a possibility of an Israeli-Saudi rapprochement? Well, the Saudis have been very clear in recent weeks that they are waiting still for a Palestinian state, and only then they will have official relations with Israel. I think the Saudis have done something very significant. They've allowed Israeli planes to fly through their airspace on the way to the Emirates, and that is something they never allowed in the past. And this may sound like a minor detail, but once again, the fact that Israeli planes, El Alb planes, can fly over Saudi Arabia as if it was just a normal part of the world is, is a major change. And for the Saudis, that's quite a significant move. And where does this leave the Palestinians? I mean, Mahmoud Abbas sounded, uh, to use the British vernacular, gutted when uh, he was talking about uh, the the deal with the UAE. Are they even more beleaguered than before? They're both beleaguered, and and what's worse for them, they're marginalised, because for so many years, the Israel-Palestine conflict was a central issue on the global diplomatic agenda, and Leaders coming to the region made it their main issue. And there was a, if, if we solve the Israel-Palestine conflict, we can solve all the problems of the Middle East. That's very obviously now not the case. For quite a few years now, the Palestinian issue has been pushed off the agenda. The Arab Spring did that. This um, increasingly strong alliance between Israel and the, Gulf, and the Arab Gulf states against Iran did that. The Trump administration did that. Europe's preoccupation with its own problems did that. There's no serious diplomatic uh, uh, impetus again behind trying to solve the Palestinian issue. It will still be brought up as you know, as lip service, but the, the Palestinians have, by and large, been forgotten by the world. The conflict hasn't gone away. There's still 
millions of Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza without rights and living under various degrees of Israeli occupation. That hasn't changed, but the world's not looking at it anymore. And, you know, for many years, people were saying, well, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict will be like South Africa or Northern Ireland. It will ultimately be solved. We all know what the solution is, two states, etc. And it's beginning to look like something more like Tibet, which was once upon a time a very fashionable cause in the West, free Tibet, the Dalai Lama, you will remember, was, you know, was fated by, by world leaders and film stars wherever he went. And now nobody talks about that anymore. And there's, there's a creeping feeling that the Palestinian issue is a bit like that. It's one of those conflicts or injustices which the world has uh, sort of given up on. But that sounds, certainly if you're Netanyahu, like a great triumph, because I don't think he's spent much time worrying about Palestinian rights personally. But presumably there is a faction of people in Israel, I suspect the newspaper, Israeli newspaper you work for, Hararetz, which is on the left, which has deep misgivings about this as in terms of both whether you can sit on the Palestinian issue forever and also what it does to Israel to go for this kind of solution. You're perfectly right. But Netanyahu can now present this as a big political and diplomatic victory. Because for years, on the left and even even on the centre and some leaders on the right within Israel were warning that if we don't solve this issue with the Palestinians, the world will bring on Israel unbearable pressure. Ehud Barak, Israel's former prime minister, called it a diplomatic tsunami. He said, if we don't solve this, there'll be a diplomatic tsunami of pressure on Israel. Ariel Sharon, another former prime minister, said that if Israel isn't proactive in, on the Palestinian issue, Israel will be like the bull being taken into the corrales in the bullfight for slaughter at the end of the bullfight. All these people who were saying that the occupation of, is unsustainable, you remember that unsustainable used to be that buzzword, it's not sustainable. 53 years since 1967, the occupation is still seems quite sustainable from, from Israel's point of view because nobody's really bringing any real pressure. There were talks of boycott and divestment. That's proven to be a phantom menace. So Netanyahu can now say to all his rivals, both at home and abroad, look, you've been saying for so many years this needs to be solved or Israel will be in trouble. Israel's economy is flourishing, at least it was until a few months ago before the pandemic began. Israel's foreign relations have never been stronger with countries around across the globe, including now Arab and Muslim countries in various places around the world. Who would have believed this was ha- this would happen under a right-wing Israeli government, which is not even willing to countenance any type of uh, of compromise with the Palestinians? Now, you said that the analogy with South Africa is no longer fashionable, but it's still, if I can put it this way, an interesting one. Because if if Israel does occupy Palestine, but these are people without votes for any kind of meaningful representation. It does raise questions over Israel's much prized status as as a democracy. It certainly does, and the parallels are there. I mean, obviously, each situ- each uh, country and each conflict has its own special characteristics. But without a question, there is a very big moral issue here. But when I mentioned South Africa, I meant South Africa in the sense that people saw this trajectory in which apartheid would finally end with a in the way it did, and this trajectory doesn't seem to be happening in the Israel-Palestinian conflict. So various uh, human rights groups and various groups in the left who who continue to champion the Palestinian cause are obviously making the comparison to apartheid, but you're hearing it less and less in the more mainstream 
diplomatic uh, circles and even the media, to be honest, is less interested than it used to be in the conflicts. Yeah. But do you think um, part of what's working for Netanyahu is a big change in the international political environment in the sense that he's dealing with Donald Trump, who's not famously interested in human rights, but also with changes in the Middle East. We talked about Saudi Arabia in some changes in Europe with slightly surprising friends like Viktor Orban and so on, a, a move towards nationalism and away from liberalism that suddenly Israel is kind of part of. These are all developments that Netanyahu has, has managed to leverage towards his own viewpoint. I mean, don't forget, when Barack Obama came into office now almost, uh, almost 12 years ago, Obama put the Palestinian issue at the top of his foreign policy agenda. And Netanyahu, who was prime minister for almost all the Obama period, brazened out and barely budged. I mean, he, the only thing he did was he agreed in sort of, a, he made a speech sort of agreeing in principle to two-state solution, but with so many caveats and, and never actually following up with any action on, on that. So even when the international political atmosphere was different before this this period of populism and nationalism in which we're in, in which uh, Donald Trump is is one of the main symbols of. Even before Netanyahu was, he was holding fast to to his rejection of of any real compromise with the Palestinians. But it's true that this period has been extremely useful for him. He's had so many more allies around the world, from Trump to Orban to Bolsonaro in uh, in Brazil, and certainly and Narendra Modi, who the, he has a very very good relationship with. All these leaders in different parts of the world, you know, they have a similar agenda to his, and they're not interested in the Palestinians at all. So domestically, is this his, if you like, uh, it's almost uh, not a metaphor anymore, his get-out-of-jail card, because he's he's in been in big political trouble, uh, he's got this corruption trial hanging over him. Where do things stand for him on that? Well, he certainly liked to use it as his get-out-of-jail uh, card. We've had, in the last year and a half, three consecutive election campaigns all ending in stalemate and Netanyahu made in all these campaigns a big de- a lot out of his statesmanship and how all these world leaders are friends of his and flying off to Washington or Moscow or Delhi just before elections and even one of these three campaigns was basically him and posters of him standing next to Trump and Putin and Modi and making this into into trying to t- say to Israelis you know, I'm in a different league to any of my enemy of my rivals. How can you even imagine replacing me with somebody who doesn't have these personal relationships with all the world leaders? And this wasn't very successful. At the end of the day, Netanyahu failed in any of these three elections to get the majority he needs in the Knesset to pass laws which would have shielded him from prosecution. So the opposition failed to win as well. And as a result, Netanyahu is still prime minister, but he hasn't got that elusive majority in the Knesset to pass laws which will save him from prosecution. And Netanyahu, as a serving prime minister, is now on trial. So where does that trial stand? Well, in January, the trial resumes with evidentiary stage. And that, you know, until now, he's only actually been once physically in court for the reading of, of the indictment. But in January... The the witnesses will, will start uh, appearing, and he and the schedule at least so at least according to the judges is supposed to be three sessions every week. It's hard to imagine a prime minister with such a, a onerous job as as running the state of Israel being three days a week in court. Uh, we've yet to see it happen, but that that's uh, we're we're on track for that right now, and he has various legal and political safeguards against being 
fired or, or being forced to resign during this period, but he will be on trial for very serious charges, bribery and fraud, which could ultimately lead him both being convicted and then forced to resign or uh, end up in jail. You know, if that happens, it would be an incredibly salutary end to his political career. But again, one of the points you make in his in the biography is that throughout his political career, he sort of set himself up as almost a, somebody who questioned the the model on which Israel was founded, wanted to re-found the state on a, on a different basis. And he's now the longest serving prime minister in Israel's history. So do you think he's already got his place in the history books, not just as a long-serving prime minister, but as somebody who's fundamentally altered the trajectory of the country? I think that Netanyahu, whether he's actually altered the trajectory or he symbolizes this period in Israel's history, is certainly the most significant figure. I mean, we going back even further than the, than the, the foundation of Israel in 1948, go back to the beginning of Zionism at the end of the 19th century, and you basically have three periods. You have one period which is before the foundation of the state, which is more of a diplomatic and building period in which various Zionist statesmen tried to convince the world powers to to allow for a Jewish state to be established in the ancient homeland. And that finally succeeded in 1947, when the United Nations voted to, to, to form the partition plan to form a, a Jewish state, an Arab state. And then you had a period in which the founding generation, who were of the left wing of Zionism, the socialist Zionists, David Ben-Gurion and his uh, his party were building the actual state. And then you had, from 1977 onwards, when Menachem Begin, Likud's first leader, finally won an election after 29 years of trying, Israel is in a more of a nationalist period. And Netanyahu, even though he's, not, he's only the fourth Likud prime minister, certainly symbolizes this period more than anyone else. And what he's done is he's managed to bring together all these relatively smaller groups within Israel, secular right-wing people, settlers, ultra-Orthodox, um, many Mizrahi Jews, and groups who who felt they were outsiders during the founding decades of, of labor in Israel, who felt that they were on the outside looking inward at the establishment. And now he's keeping his coalition together with this feeling that if we lose, then these defeatist, elitist, Ashkenazi, left-wingers will take back power from the people. We are the, we are the people. And this is a very nationalist phase in Israeli history. But at the same time, I think that Netanyahu is also being tainted by mismanagement and incompetence in his response to the COVID pandemic because Netanyahu demanded to be the one leading the national response to COVID. He gave very little room for other ministers and for other officials to work. As we know from other countries, if, if you haven't got a, a functioning civil service, if the country isn't well run and there's no, there isn't a high level of confidence in, in the government, it's very difficult to deal with the pandemic. Okay, well, we'll leave it there now. Thanks for a fascinating conversation. Really enjoyed it. That was Anshul Pfeffer on the line from Jerusalem. And that's it for this week. Please join us again next week. You'll find us in all the usual podcast apps. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.